Hey everybody, thanks for joining the show again. If you've listened to the episodes leading up to this one, there are likely a few different threads that you picked up along the way. Yes, this is a show primarily about those who have been in the military and those who have served along with it, though it will branch out in the future. A lot of my guests are veterans, which provides an insight to the military and the life afterwards. One thing that may be more subtle, however, is the reflection upon how war has impacted us, in ways both good and bad. A common analogy in the military is that of the rucksack. You could always hear an instructor or someone, before they're lending advice, tell you, well here's a little rock to put in your rucksack. I was never terribly fond of this one, but perhaps time and maturity have eased the angsty cynicism I once possessed. The message is this. Each piece of information you encounter or lesson you learn is like a tool you can add to your pack and carry with you, but not all of them are useful. You can use them to cut, defend yourself, help others, shelter, and on and on. But of course, there's always the ones you should leave behind or never pick up. We also may use that information or tools for different purposes. Today I'm interviewing another classmate of mine, Danny Sturzen. We both spent tours in Iraq and Afghanistan at nearly identical times. We have a common background and an understanding of experiences we share, which makes us brothers in many ways. But those experiences have brought us to different ideological outcomes, for the time being at least. Danny's journey gave him knowledge and perspective, which brought him to a stance of anti-war. I implore you to listen to his story. It's not divisive, it's not provocative, but it might force you to at least view the things you think you know through a different lens. If the contemporary experience serves you correctly, your opinions will remain. But I challenge you to listen and understand. Danny is extremely well-read, a former history instructor at West Point, in fact. So you just might learn a thing or two along the way. I'm proud to present this episode to you. Thanks for listening. Welcome to No Shit There I Was a show committed to sharing the stories and experiences of those in and around the military for everyone to hear. So please, relax and enjoy. Today's episode is brought to you by Emblem Athletic. Chances are high that at some point you've had to endure a monogram 50-50 blend sweatshirt in order to have some semblance of sports gear. Here's the thing, apparel doesn't have to come from Gam Gam side hustle to be custom made and hand sewn. Emblem Athletic designs and hand stitches every thread of your custom gear to make sure it's right. And if that's not good enough, you get a no sweat, 100% satisfaction guarantee. Just a couple notes before we get started. Please excuse an audio issue on my end on this episode. It's not a big deal. You may not even hear it. And just for your knowledge, there is some swearing in this episode, but please enjoy. Let's just start out nice and easy. You know, your background, where are you from? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Joey, thanks for contacting me and asking me to come on. You know, um, I didn't know that you were doing the podcast, but once you told me about it, I started to, you know, look at the initial episodes you did. And, of course, I know Ryan Miller, who was uh, on your last pod and talked about his experience getting wounded and his uh, experience with, you know, the cannabis for veteran issue, which is kind of an interesting entryway to, like, who I am. I mean, you know, we, we first met, you know, briefly and some uh, while we were at West Point. But I come from the same borough of New York City as, as Ryan Miller. So we both grew right. up on Staten Island. Um, he went to high school in Manhattan. I went to high school in Staten Island. We didn't know each other at all, which is interesting because we actually ran in a lot of the same sort of neighborhoods, but uh, just didn't didn't really know each other. 
I think like Ryan, you know, I, I, I don't come from a military family. One of the things that I've done, you know, as I got into like the scholarship of like military service and military demographics and sort of studying who fights these wars, which is like one of my obsessions um, right. about the efficacy and the equity of that. You know, I found that like an enormous number of military officers, military people in general, but especially West Pointers, as we both learned at the academy, are like legacies, right? Like a lot of military families, maybe not their parent, but, you know, a lot of other folks who are on active duty. I had none of that. I mean, my grandfathers were both in World War II because like everybody's grandfathers who are our age, you know, if they were of age, were in the military. Yeah, definitely that or Korea. Right. Yeah, because there was a draft. I mean, there was even a peacetime draft, right? Even well through mm-hmm. the 1950s. So, you know, it was pretty common for everybody to serve in the military. But, I, you know, nobody in my family really, like, served. Uh, but I do come from kind of like a paramilitary family neighborhood. I'm, I'm from a neighborhood called Midland Beach in Staten Island. It's not uncommon for people from Staten Island to refer to us as a UWT, which would stand for Urban White Trash. Uh, it, it, it was the kind of neighborhood, it really was the kind of neighborhood where every family had a lot of sons because there was a lot of Irish Catholics. So there was a lot of, there was a lot of boys and a lot of girls, but like in any family, and, and I, I can say this about like the families that were closest to us, if there were, you know, an even number of boys, two, four, six, right? I had four uncles, literally half of them, almost to a man were caught, became cops, firemen garbage men, city workers, you know, and then the other half, usually crime, prison, drug overdoses. And in my family, that was literally the case, right? Four uncles, two crime and drugs, both dead now, and two firefighters who just retired, you know, like, right, big time affected by 9-11. My grandfather was a firefighter, all my cousins. So I went to the academy, uh, second person in my family ever to go to college in the entire extended family. I mean, so West Point was kind of a big deal to them. More so even than me. I mean, I was excited about it because I had wanted to go into the army because I had grown up very patriotic in like the more standard sense than I am now. Not because I had like a military family, but I was just like obsessed with like, you know, our generation, toy soldiers, G.I. Joe, war movies, Um, my firefighters. And like there is like a real connection there, like cops and firemen in new york love soldiers like to this day they'll buy your drinks if you run into cops or firemen in a bar in new york and they find out you're military you know so i I thought well this is a way that i can show that i'm like special and interesting i can show that i'm a tough guy i guess and then really what i was really excited about was traveling and getting away from just like the neighborhood you know not that it was that bad of a place it's not like it was like i was living in the wire or anything but it was just like I wanted to do something different. So, you know, you know when we went to West Point, right? July 2nd, 2001. Right. And in, in a lot of my talks, I try to explain to people because it's easy to forget, especially when I speak to colleges because these kids were babies on 9-11. Joining the Army when we did, when we were the last West Point class to do this, joining the Army in a time of peace, our expectations, right? I mean, I, I hope I can speak for you. I think our expectations of what military career or military five years after West Point were going to be. very. No, I can tell you. Yeah. No. Yeah, I can, my, my dad told me, he was like, yeah, you know, you're going to be in the army and you know, you might go and do some training stuff somewhere, but you, you, you'll be in and if you want to be in for five years, you can go do that stuff and then get out and you'll be great. Chances of anything like that happening are very low. Oh yeah. I mean, I remember thinking, because I was like a reader and stuff. I was always a dork and I, I was like, okay, well, uh, I'll get stationed in Germany. I'll meet a pretty blonde woman marry her. And if worst case scenario, I'll go to Kosovo and no one dies in Kosovo. Well, no Americans die in Kosovo. So right. I'll, I'll just take some cool pictures. I'll have some good war stories that aren't really war stories. And that'll be that, you know, 
And of course, we know what happened, right? I was in boxing class. I'm sure you know exactly where you were, right? Yep, math class. I was in DDS. Yep, there it is. Yep, and only West Pointers would know what DDS is. <laughs> we got discrete dynamical systems. Yeah, beautiful class. <laughs> oh God. I mean, it affected all of us, and no one. I don't believe in like anyone being more affected by anything else or having a monopoly on feelings or whatever. But it was a little bit interesting for me because when I ran into the gym across from the boxing annex that we were using when the gym was under construction and over to like where the fitness center was. And I was watching this go down. I mean, I was like, Oh God, like, okay. A, that's my city. B, my uncles are going or they're dead already. But more selfishly, I was like, okay, so I guess, I guess war probably. Right. You know, we didn't really know what that was going to mean. So yeah, you know, that was kind of my background. My uncles lived a large portion of my neighborhood was, was killed uh, just about every, it's a small neighborhood. I would say, about every other street is renamed after a dead copper fireman. I mean, it is, it is like, wow, it is the movie version of blue collar New York, you know? And so that was, right. that was that I was excited. Like, I think a lot of us were, or at least enthusiastic about the concept of like actually getting to like do our job. And I was angry and I didn't have a particularly sophisticated understanding of like the middle East or the motivations of Al Qaeda or why, like, significant minorities of the middle east population supported them so yeah. you know that was that i think everybody kind of that naive feeling of you know oh wow you know i came here and this was always a possibility but now i'm going to get to go do it you know not to say it's a bad thing all young folks that are in the military are, are a victim of it i mean i say victim of it but that's just something that you feel you know yeah. that's just it's there people ask me all the time because you know like we'll get to it but i've developed into a pretty fairly dogmatic although I hate the word anti-war, anti-imperial, uh, and the fact that I even use that word is instructive uh, and tells you something about me. But, you know, I've, I've, developed, totally into, okay. I've developed into a pretty anti-war fellow. And, and so I get a lot of questions. People say like, oh my God, like, do you regret going to West Point? Do you regret being in the army? And so I just explained, I'm not like super thrilled when I have to tell the story of how I felt over St. Patrick's Day weekend, our yuck year, sophomore year when I was in a New York City bar, just plastered with my uncles, like a firefighter bar on St. Patrick's Day, and like watching the Iraq war sort of kick off, right? Mm -hmm. uh, this is in 03 in March, and obviously March 17th. Um, so it was either kicking off or it just kicked off. I can't remember, but I'm like watching the war, like get ready to kick off or, or happen. And yeah. uh, my biggest fear during that event was that the war would end quick and we would be like almost like the disgraced class in the sense that all like the 01, 02, maybe 03 graduates of those years would get like their combat patches. And like for listeners who, I mean, like a lot of people probably know, but maybe not everyone does. Like if, if you've been to combat, you get to wear like a patch of the unit you went to combat with on your right shoulder. And in our, mm -hmm. like, in our, in our culture, especially when you're like 19 and 20 years old and like just want to prove yourself that you're like a real soldier. Cause like cadets have a little bit of a, I think a chip on our shoulder of not being considered like real active duty. There was like a fear that if you didn't have like certain patches or certain, you know, ribbons that you like, were going to be devalued because one of the interesting things about a, a, a job that wears its resume on its sleeve and chest, which we do, right. We're not, right. The, we're not the only one, but we're one of the unique organizations that literally wears our resume on our chest, which is, is odd in a way. But when you're in an organization like that, like you, you fear judgment, right? Cause everybody is sort of tacitly judging each other. And so I was really afraid that I'd miss the war. So I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know exactly where I'm going to take it except to say that that's who I was. Right. So I was, I was worried that I'd miss it. I, uh, I, I really felt like my identity going forward as an adult was going to be very wrapped up in what I did or didn't get to do in this new war on terror. Um, yeah. 
It was really, I agree. it was a fixation. And uh, I think most of us, it wasn't cool to admit that. So I think like, it, you know, you were kind of considered what we would call back then, right? A tool bag, right? But like, if you talked about it openly, and except like with your best friends over too many drinks, like it, it wasn't cool. But I think a lot of us were probably thinking something similar. Um, or at least a lot of my friends have admitted that um, yeah. later. So our senior year, we do almost like an NFL draft style uh, election, <laughs> right? It's crazy. Though. It's true. It's, it's true. Kind of good. It's a fun night, right? It's a fun night. You drink too much, you know, you, you, you figure, you find out what your branch is going to be. And like, especially when you, so anyway, yeah, I, I, it was time to pick branches, meaning your job in the army. And I was actually fairly high in our class. I don't know, maybe around 80, um, out of 911, which I don't know if you mentioned any of the former pods, but it's crazy. Like, better than I was. Like, yeah, well, that, that just means I was dorkier and <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, the thing is, I was just doing my Goodwill hunting impression. That's it. I wasn't trying that hard. But, you know, so <laughs> what was happening, though, is like, you know, we, we come in, we're the, the last class to come in before 9-11, right? We're the freshmen during 9-11. And then somehow right. we end up, we came in with what, like 1,200 cadets? And then like we end up with 911 graduates. To this day, by the way, I have a theory. They definitely either kick somebody out or let somebody stay who should have been kicked out in order to get to 9-11. You know, that's my conspiracy theory, right? Put it up there with like Kennedy and 9-11 truth. Like, I mean, it's feasible, yeah. Right, like West Point totally wanted to be on the cover of Time Magazine like we were as the class of 9-11. Now, I don't know, I'm, I'm mostly- yeah, we, we had at least one who was kicked out there in the end and during graduation week. Right, oh, isn't that terrible when that happens? Oh my God. Um, yeah, it was, yeah. But it, it, was, it was completely legit from what I recall. Right. So yeah, you know- um, I was pretty high in the class. I could have been anything. Looking back, in terms of like my sort of cerebral nature and my skill set, I, I probably would have made sense as maybe like an MI, like a military intelligence officer. But I didn't consider that for a second. And, and let me be clear and a little bit self-deprecating. None of that is because I was a cool guy or a tough guy. It's because I was too embarrassed to – I was between armor and infantry. What were you, Joey? Uh, infantry. Infantry, okay. So I was between yeah. armor and infantry, and I literally made the decision largely based on which instructors I happen to have liked better. Like, And that's so random, right? It's nothing against the infantry. I mean, I basically spent my career playing infantry because we were like, kind of, you know, minus the ranger tabs. But like, so yeah, it was between nice. armor and infantry, and it was like, that was it. And and I was too embarrassed to walk around because, okay, guys, so listeners, like, we, we pick in, I don't know, November or something, right? We pick our branch. And then, like, for the rest of your senior year, you wear the job you chose on your chest, like, every day, right? Yeah, literally, and yeah. Everybody looks at you, and it's this, like, resume on the chest again. I mean, and remember, this is the time of war. So, I mean, I have nothing against people who chose com uh, combat support branches uh, or service support Definitely branches. Definitely not. But I, I wasn't brave enough. I mean, I was too embarrassed. I mean, I was like, all right, I got to pick a combat branch. And, and, I, and I had, like, kind of got into this whole, like, nonsensical, like, although I still enjoy it to some extent like cav thing i was like i'm gonna be a cav officer which was basically just like armored or light reconnaissance and so that was the culture right. i wanted to get into that's what i ended up doing i was like uh, my whole career and i was an armor officer who never who never ever ever was on a tank or a bradley except during the basic course so it was just very odd but it was a time of war right and and so i was insecure just like a, like a lot of us probably were i mean i was like i wanted to show that i was a tough guy i don't know that i had like the, the balls to go out there and do it and uh right when we actually got out there and, you know, the first the first casualty from our class ended up being Emily Perez, who was a non-combat arms uh, officer. And you kind of get out there and you realize, well, I mean, all that's kind of BS. Yeah. You, know, you had all these people that were exposed to combat that, you know, in, in a lot of other wars may not have been. 
that's a really good point. So we all, right, most, most of us picked infantry or a lot of us picked infantry, armor, artillery, because a, a, either we had to or we or we wanted to. And then, yeah, it's Emily Perez, who I think was uh, maybe transportation, who was, who was killed first, African-American female. And I remember our first year, one of my DMI instructors, so this like military science, Department of Military Instruction, like Joey said, he actually had just come back from like the 03, like initial invasion, because they only, I think they only go to grad school for one year. And, and he showed us at one point. So this is maybe like... April of 05. So we're getting ready to graduate. So the war is about two years old and maybe about 1,500 Americans have died. And this guy pulled up the stats of like the KIAs by MOS. I don't know how he found it because that's hard to find. I've tried. Yeah. And he laid it out up to that point. And uh, like, you know, infantry was up there, you know, 19 Delta, which is basically what I did. Cab was up there. But 88 Mike, which was truck drivers, was like way up there too. Because those guys had to drive the roads of Baghdad and, and elsewhere like we did. So, yeah, so the point is, I mean, a lot of that concern over whether you were combat arms turned out to be somewhat half-baked. I think in Afghanistan maybe it mattered a little more, at least when I was there, like later in 2011, where I think the combat branches did obviously see a lot more danger. But just the nature of the war. But, in, you know, in, in Iraq, there was a lot of just driving around, and driving around is dangerous. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, Especially, you know, as the ID threat increased, the, you know, driving around, the more you're exposed to the roads, it didn't yeah. really which is why military police had like high casualties too, because they always had to like go check on police stations that they were advising, you know, and make sure yep. that the Iraqis weren't like raping their prisoners or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm joking, but uh, somewhat true. You but, know, yeah, more, more so in Afghanistan. Uh, I just wrote an article about uh, child rape in Afghanistan. So, uh, yeah, that was West Point, right? And so I was a full believer in Bush in neoconservatism, even though I didn't really understand the word yet, I would I would describe myself as a burgeoning neocon in 2001, 2, and 3, meaning like a, a specific bent of conservatives that dominated the Bush administration who were very focused on remaking the Middle East and using military force to what they called inactive freedom agenda, right? Which is literally what they called it. Right. Um, this was their viewpoint. They, they, were, they were very, it was almost like a chauvinistic foreign policy, but they said it was for good intent. We can discuss whether they believed it. I think that we'll probably never know for sure. That was kind of how I felt. I, I didn't vote in 2000 because I was 17 when I went to the academy. I, I actually turned 18 in Beast Barracks, which is our basic training the summer before we start classes. So I didn't get to vote in 2000, but I would have voted for George W. Bush proudly. I was a believer in the Iraq War. I didn't really question or do my research on the background of any of that. I didn't really care that much about the cause of the war. To me, it was just like, okay, 9-11 happened. Muslims seemed to hate us. And it's funny because I was a good student in my essays and stuff, especially history, which was what I studied, but I was really good at like social sciences. I mean, when I was discussing some other topic, I, I was really good at like nuance and making arguments. And yet in the issues that were going to inform my life, I didn't really question much, period. Yeah. You know? Which is kind of interesting because as a, a contrast, I mean, I guess I was not terribly critical, but I was a little bit critical because I was, well, I understood with Afghanistan, but with Iraq, I was, I was like, well, uh, I mean, I get it, but is any of this an imminent threat necessarily? I guess I did have questions. I don't know if I really voiced them all that much, but I did have questions, even, you know, kind of even as we were closer to getting to go there. So, yeah. But at the same time, I never like openly jumped out and said, oh, yeah, you know, this, this doesn't seem right. You know, I said, okay, well, that's somebody's telling me I need to go there. I need to go there. That's part of my duty. So. Right. 
and we were raised on this like professionalism culture right where the idea of right. like you're you're a professional first and so like loyalty to the institution it was important you're not you know it, it, yeah critical thinking is good but there also wasn't really a lot of space or platform to voice those things and and i don't mean that like, certainly not i don't mean that west point was like particularly repressive i mean i have my gripes with the academy but a lot of people misjudge my critique and think that like i hate west point or the army and that's just like not true we'll get into that but like i mean shit i still watch yeah. every single army football game every week for my sins yeah they've been good recently but so i started to have my first doubt my first year my senior year this is interesting i had a instructor who was a just made full bird colonel no, he was still a lieutenant colonel. His name was James Sedgley. Ty, he goes by Ty Sedgley. And he was a new lieutenant colonel. He had just come back to the academy. He had taught there as a captain in the history department. Really smart guy. Really interesting dude. Like, a little bit weird. Kind of looked like, he looked like a mad scientist, you know. He was smart, and he thought outside the box. And we had this new, like, colloquium class, which was just like a readings course for history majors, where we would just, like, read and discuss. And there wasn't, like, a lot of, like, tests and stuff. But it was really interesting. And so yeah. he assigned a book at the end of our spring semester, right before graduation, by this West Point grad named Andy Basevich, Andrew J. Basevich. Andrew Basevich graduated from West Point in 1969. He branched CAV, or armor, and then CAV, like I did. He served in the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment in Vietnam. And then he stayed in the Army for a long, long time and actually ended up commanding the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment just before the Gulf War. Um, and then he retired in like 92 or 93 under some interesting circumstances as an 06 and goes off to academia and has this like born again, like road to Damascus shit go on. And we could discuss why that is, but it's not really important. And he becomes like this, like anti-American foreign policy, thinks that like we misjudged the Cold War, thinks that we're overreacting to terrorism, thinks that we're actually acting like an empire. He, he writes a book called American Empire before anyone's using that word. Anyway, he writes a book called The New American Militarism in 2004. So it's just come out and Ty Sedgley, a lieutenant colonel in the army teaching history department, assigns this book. The book's epilogue. Now, I don't necessarily agree with this, but the book's epilogue among its like 14 different conclusions that it sums up, one of them is we need to get rid of the military academies because they're bastions of like elitism and groupthink and blah, blah, blah. We need to get back to the notion of the citizen soldier. Now, whether you agree with that or not, and I'm on the fence about that, I actually don't agree with it. But who assigns that? Right. It was crazy. And oh, by the yeah. way, and oh, by the way, Basevich's book, even though it's only 04 when he publishes it, is already critical of the Iraq invasion. So that was the first time. And I really, I bought some of his arguments. I wasn't all in. And I certainly didn't know that we were going to become colleagues, friends, and, you know, full disclosure, like work together like we do now. I had no idea. I would never dreamed it. But me and Basevich, I mean now. But I was like, okay, there's something to this. So that happened. But I, you know, it, it was like in the back of my mind, like I started to be like, eh, I don't know, there's something fishy about this Iraq war. But, you know, it wasn't so much that I thought it was wrong as I thought it was unwinnable. So by like 05, 06, I was just watching the war on TV and reading about it. And, you know, it was going really badly, as you remember. Yeah. And I was like, I'm just not sure we're going to win. So I was more like questioning the prudence rather than like the morals or the strategy of it. And so that's where I was. And then I go to my unit, you know, did we, we go to like training and then we go to our unit. I took over a scout platoon. I had a boss, a lieutenant colonel named Jimmy Phillips. He was infantry because a lot of light reconnaissance or light cav battalions, squadrons are led by infantry officers back then, yeah. so, uh, which was fine. And he was, it turned out to be a pretty good dude. We get to Kuwait before deployment to Iraq. And uh, when did you go? What, were, what, what months were you there? What month and year to what month and year the first time? Let's see. I flew out early November 06 and then got back in January of 08. So I got extended. Oh, yeah. 
Dude, we were literally there almost the exact. I was there from October 11th until December 30. Yeah, yeah. Uh, October 11th until December 31st, New Year's Eve. Seven, yeah. Do you, you you were lucky enough to be there for the blood, literally the bloodiest months when you add them up uh, of of pretty much any possible tour. Have you ever done the math on that? On like when you'd have to show up and when you'd have to leave there to be there for like the most fatalities. I mean, I'm a dork, so I, this is the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night. But we were there yeah. for bad times. Yeah. You know, I think I knew from about June '06 to about midway through my tour was some of the bloodiest was like the yep. bloodiest year it, it did slow down i guess in late 07 and we can argue about why that happened you know as the surge kind of kicked in we got more troops oh. and made a couple of moves like truces with the sunnis but so uh, i i i show up in kuwait it's like mid october and we spent like two weeks there doing a little like last minute training right. like zeroing our rifles and getting some briefings and learning how much it's fucking hot as balls. And there's literally no topography in Kuwait. And my Colonel takes us on as he loved PT. He took us on a run, like an officer run, like all 30 of us, right? Everybody from like the chaplain to the Colonel, you know? And then when it's over, he like gathers us in a circle. And I could tell that Jimmy was like having some sort of like fit of conscience. He was definitely the loyal soldier. You know, he was definitely a motivated infantryman, obsessed with physical fitness, like almost to a fault definitely expected loyalty and like toughness and all that but i could tell something was on his mind and he pulls us together and he gave us no warning and he like goes on this like 10 minute rant but very from the heart like he looked like he was going to tear up about how we had just read thomas ricks's book fiasco this was a book tom ricks is like a military commentator for many decades now i think he used to write for like the washington post but he writes about military issues and he wrote a book in like maybe 05 called fiasco and it was all about the lies and obfuscations that got us into the war and he really focused on the failures of the generals and the civilians in the Pentagon to like have a plan to deal with the insurgency and the occupation. And, and it, it was a scathing book and it, it was written for a public audience. It wasn't a scholarly book. So it was digestible. It was well written. I have my issues with Tom Ricks now, but it was a good book. And, and yeah, maybe he had just read definitely it. writes some interesting things for uh, foreign policy. Now. Yeah, right. He does a lot of that now. Yes, exactly. So Colonel Phillips, Jimmy had read this book, like just read it. And he like starts telling us about like how it really affected him. I never really seen anything like like this happen up to this point. Like a senior officer like question the war. I mean, I don't even know if it was the right thing to do. I respected it, but and then he like ends it by saying like, okay, well, like whether the war is a mess, whether we're winning, no matter what, basically we're just gonna like get through this together. And it was like very somber, and it wasn't very hoorah. It wasn't like let's go kill some Arabs. And that was like his final motivational speech before he went in, which was interesting because that was not this guy. He was not like an intellectual type. But that was that, and that's and we literally went into Iraq a few days later. So I had that doubt. We went to Camp Rustamaya, which they used to sell T-shirts in the little shitty uh, soldier store that we had there, like the PX. And it, they would say, welcome to Mortaritaville instead of Margaritaville because yeah. we used to get mortared a lot. And um, so I was in the southeast corner of Baghdad. I moved around a lot. The colonel used to say that that's because we're cav and the cavalry goes to the sound of the guns. That The real reason is. When we got there, as you know, there was a lot of shuffling, right? Because the surge forces started, you know, rotating in in January and February. And um, we'd all been extended, most of us, for three extra months. We all did 15 months-ish, you and I both, and almost everybody. So I moved yeah. sectors yeah, three times. And so first, we actually weren't working in Baghdad. We were based in Baghdad, but we would drive into what they used to call the Baghdad belts which are basically the suburbs of Baghdad in a, in a circle around the city. And the most dangerous ones were um, southeast, southwest, especially southwest and the Sunni Triangle, and then directly west, which in your neck of the woods. 
from Baghdad, so outside the city limits. And the yeah. idea was that what became Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which I think they were still calling Tawid al-Jihad during the beginning of our tour, and then they started calling Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and then, of course, kind of morphs into ISIS later, but they were like creating footholds, like bases, right? Logistical base in there. And then they were like fl filtering their yeah. car bombs and, and, and weapons and fighters into Baghdad itself to destabilize the city, right? And so that's where I initially was. I was in a city called Salman Pak, which was a mixed city, uh, very, very contested. I mean, it, it, it was about 150,000 people. I mean, it was it, it was a big city. It, it, I, I used to equate it to like Newark, New Jersey. You know, I'm from New York City. And so like, you know, it was only like 10 miles as the crow flies from, from Baghdad city limits. And it was still a big sort of city, but like similar like Newark or Jersey City or Bayonne, like one of these little like Jersey cities that's only a few miles from New York, but it's a separate entity. That's what kind of what it was like. Right. But we were only there from like late October when we showed up until um, January, and then we got moved into Baghdad itself. But that was complicated. So let me start with Salman Pak. And there was really two things that sort of most affected me in this deployment that, you know, you would ask me to talk about. And one of them happens down in Salman Pak. So just to give you an idea of what Salman Pak was, it was, it was a pretty dangerous place. It's got a long history. It used to be the capital of the Parthian, which is a Persian empire during the Roman times, then the Sassanid, which was the successor Persian empire during the Byzantine times, and then the, the Seleucids uh, even before that, which was during like Alexander's time. So th this had been like a capital city at one time in like the fifth uh, century, I'm sorry, like in the fourth century BC, excuse my dorkiness, it, w it was the most populous city in the world. Not to distract from the story, but, you know, you're kind of bringing back a rush of, of memory. One of the cooler things that I always like to try and tell my guys about when we were talking about where we were and everything, when you really stop and consider in antiquity what that space in Baghdad and Mesopotamia really means and, and how much history is rich right in that area. You know, we had a ziggurat, one of a few in Iraq, and that was right in our battle space. And so, you know, a living monument to, an, you know, an ancient polytheistic religion that my guys never would even hear about unless they stood right in front of it and then someone could tell them about it, which yeah. thankfully I was able to do. It, but it's really even, great you know, what you brought up. About. I mean, I'm thankful that I got to spend that time in such an ancient place, right? Baghdad is the capital of the yeah. uh, the Abbasid Arab Empire, which controls most of the known Eastern world until 1258 when the Mongols take over. I mean, this is like, this is some ancient shit, right? Like, I mean, like we're talking like cradle civilization, Absolutely. right? So, you know, that was Salman Pak. And, and the ruins of the old Persian empires are still there. We used to do OPs, yeah. like from the top of like these ancient structures that like back during Saddam's era or before the Gulf War, before he became like persona non grata, British, Australian, worldwide, like tourists and archaeologists would come here. And so it was really weird. Like it was interesting, you know, because but anyway, Salman Pak was a dangerous city, very contested. There was one major mosque. It's a very famous mosque because Salman the Persian, who was one of the companions of the prophet, very similar to like the apostles, these people are worshipped. It's his mosque. He's buried there. Now, here's where it gets interesting. You know, we were there, and this is important to my next story, and, and excuse me for rambling. We were there in the midst of a full-throated civil war, right, Joey? Right, straight up civil war, Sunni-Shia civil war, and Absolutely. it was horrific. We were in a very difficult situation as army officers, as, as American army soldiers, in that we were policing or at least picking up the detritus of a uh, intracommunal civil war, intersectarian, Sunni versus Shia civil war. But we were also being attacked by the nationalist and or, in the case of the Sunnis, Islamist insurgents who didn't want us there on both sides. And so when I was in Salman Pak, I had the, the yeah. rare, I think, experience because by early 07, 
most of the Civil War had already kind of unfolded, and so once mixed neighborhoods had largely become segregated because of the death squads. There were still a few contested ones. I'm sure you probably had some out west because I know there were some pretty contested neighborhoods out there still in early 07. But a lot of the neighborhoods had already – like East Baghdad had always been majority Shia, but it used to have a lot of mixed neighborhoods. By the time I was there, there was only one Sunni neighborhood left, and that was Adamiya. And, I mean, all the rest, the Sunnis had just fled because they just were outgunned. But in Salman Pak, those first three months, the population was almost 50-50 Sunni Shia. And so I had this odd experience of literally not knowing each day. And we did get attacked almost every day in some capacity, not always effectively, but almost every day we were in some sort of fight, and uh, which was different from Baghdad, which was in some ways less of like a real war, right? Even though it was deadlier because the bombs were bigger. But yeah. we wouldn't know if it was going to be the Sunni militias or the shia militias that were going to attack us that day and we could usually tell by the tactics the enemy used and by the type of bombs and you know that so it was weird like i knew who was attacking me by the type of trigger device they used on the bomb and and the level of the the type of tactics they used with their small arms fire like when they shot rifles at us and hopefully you wouldn't find out from the ammunition of the bomb that they use because you could easily find out who was attacking you from that as well absolutely yeah absolutely so anyway I was down there, and, and what was interesting about Salman Pak is I, I was in more firefights in those three months, or really only like two and a half months where I was in charge myself in Salman Pak than the rest of my year in Baghdad. Even though more of my soldiers were killed and wounded in, when we moved into Baghdad in January, in terms of like what I thought a war was, the first few months were like a real war. And, and I actually was like, I kind of liked it at first until people started getting hurt. It's like that old phrase, like it's all fun and games until somebody loses an eye. Like... The yeah. first few firefights, and I don't know if you had this experience, like it was a rush, man. Like I remember going back to the FOB and um, talking to my buddies. Like oh, I happened to be in a squadron with like a lot of other West Pointers. You might know some of them, right? Ken Blewett, Scott McLaren, Steve Migliori, Keith Marfioni, right? These were, no, yeah, yeah, we were, no, we were all together. Great dudes, right? Still friends with them. And we would like, yeah. go, we would like go back and like tell war stories and bullshit. And it was kind of a rush until guys started getting hit, right? Which, which eventually started happening in December. And um, yep. I remember my first patrol that I was in charge. So you may have talked about some other guys on the pod, but I'll just briefly talk about what a left seat, right seat ride is or right seat, left seat. I never, I always confuse them. The bottom line is that's what they call it. So you first get in and, and you take over for this unit that's already been in charge of the battle space or the area you're in control of. They've been there for like a year probably, right? And and you match up. Like I was second platoon leader. So second platoon leader of like 161 Cav. We were 361 Cav, right? We were rotating out with them. I hung out with that lieutenant. I lived in his room, which became my room for two weeks. I went on patrols. The first week, like I sat in the back seat and watched him and he told me everything I needed to know. And then like the next week, his soldiers went home, but he stuck around a little longer. And like I was in charge and he would watch me. Well, November 30th was the first patrol that I led myself. So he went home. He was like, peace. I got all my legs. I win. Now I got to go home and nurse a drinking habit or whatever we all do. And so he did that. I, I lead a patrol. I'm excited, right? Because like yeah. I didn't, you know, after a while, you like get sick of having somebody watching you, you know? It's like nobody wants like an OC like observing them, even if it's a cool dude. So now and it's like, me. This is it. Right? This is it. This, this yeah. is the war, man. Like, and I'm, and all I'm thinking is like, man. Here we go, right? Here we go back to wearing your resume on your shirt. What was really important, especially in infantry, I think this is even more important because you guys have like the more historical device. But like the big thing was like you have to get attacked, right? You have to get in some level of combat and every division right. had a different standard of what combat constituted to get what was called a combat action badge for those of us who were in infantry or in your guys' case, combat infantryman badge, the CIB, which is kind of like epic. It's like the most important badge, I think, in the military in some ways. Everyone was excited about that. Like my soldiers were like, man, 
can't wait, you know, especially the young guys who hadn't been deployed yet, because a lot of the sergeants had already been once. And they were like, yeah, when is it going to happen? Well, you know, it happened very quickly. And I don't know why I said November 30th. November 30th was the first time that we got hit with a bad IED, but it was uh, it was actually uh, late October. It was like uh, maybe October 30th or 31st. And I'm leading this patrol and we're just, I don't even know what the mission was. You know, back then we weren't allowed to call it presence patrolling anymore, but yeah. we all know that largely the mission often was show presence, drive around, almost like look for trouble. I mean, you would cover it with like some sort of veneer of a mission, like, okay, today we're going to go check on this water station, or today we're going to go meet up with the Iraqi National Police and see what they're up to. And, and you're going to, you know, as a lieutenant, I'm going to go drink chai with the colonel or whatever, or the Iraqi colonel. So there was always like some sort of like posture of like what the mission was, but a lot of times it was like drive around and look for trouble. It's like, all right, and, guys, we got to be out here and, you know, we're going to go do this. And talk yeah. About this and, yeah. It got so bad at one point, and my colonel, who I grew to respect, although I really kind of hated him early in the deployment, I'm really glad I didn't write my book for six years after I got back because it would have been a really immature, angry book. I mean, I guess it was still kind of angry, but it would have been a really immature book if I had written it right after I got back from Iraq because I would have blasted Jimmy Phillips, the guy who read Fiasco, yeah. uh, because I was like so angry with him for a couple of tactical decisions he made. But like in hindsight and then after having other bosses including like a sociopath in afghanistan like a literal sociopath i actually look back very fondly on jimmy now but um at one point he was getting pressure from brigade so it wasn't just him Je uh, jeff bannister was our brigade commander who went on to be like the commander of the 10th mountain division when i was in afghanistan and, and it was crazy because i ended up working for him he was a kind of a bastard he was pressuring jimmy and then next thing you know i mean they said we weren't doing presence patrols but we were literally told each of our troops that we had to like maintain a platoon in sector 24 seven. Like we always had to have somebody out. And so whether there was really a mission to be accomplished or not, like we had to like, just literally punch the clock. We were like punching in and punching out. Like we worked at a factory. It was crazy. Let's break here real quick. Today. I want to deliver a sincere message. When I started this podcast, I knew I wanted to partner with sponsors who can provide value to my listeners and have strong values of their own, which is exactly who emblem athletic is. All that is pretty easy to say when life is normal and business is going about as well as anyone can expect. None of us could have guessed at the beginning of the year when it seemed like we were flirting with some level of armed conflict with Iran or that Australia was going to burn to the ground that we would be living through the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Experience teaches me that there are really only two types of people or organizations that emerge out of these situations. Ones that think that they must withdraw to help themselves survive and those that know they must find ways to help others survive. I don't know about you, but I've always been drawn to the helpers. That's why I'm proud to be associated with Emblem Athletic. When they found out there was a critical shortage in surgical masks for hospitals and knew that they could do something about it with their own manufacturing, they jumped into action. To date, they've delivered over 5,000 surgical masks to their local hospital. I like to support people and organizations that also improve the world around them. Emblem Athletic is exactly that type of company. So next time your unit or organization needs custom, badass gear, work with a kick-ass company that will make sure that you get it. Now back to the episode. But anyway, my first mission, uh, I don't remember what we were going to do. It doesn't even matter. That just shows you. I'm driving down Route Wild between Baghdad and Salman Park. Kind of a bad road. A lot of people have been killed in the last uh, two units before us, especially the unit before the unit we took over for. A lot of IEDs. And we hear a few pops. Turned out to be pistol fire. I was excited by the gunfire because immature Danny thought like, oh, maybe we'll get in a gunfight and I can get my guys their combat action badge and then I can feel good about myself and feel like I'm a real man because I've been to combat. So I tell Damien, 
South, Staff Sergeant South, my senior scout, lead truck, Sergeant lead truck. Hey, like beat feet, right? Or or in our Humvees, you know, let's find out what the fuck's going on. So we, we drive maybe a half mile to the sound of the guns, right? Cav style. We get down there and there's like a little bit of a crowd that's formed and there's some chaos and you can tell like something has happened. We pull over to the side of the road and what had happened was these Sunni teenagers, brothers, had been selling black market fuel. Because as you know, and as some of the listeners know, and a lot of the vets know, at the time there was like a lot of like fuel shortages and a lot of the militias would control the gas stations. Yeah, and so they would, yeah, they would control like who got to get in the front of the line and stuff. It was like the early 70s in, in like America, you know, when people were like literally having fistfights over fuel during like the, the fuel crisis. It was like that, but like way more macabre and violent. And so people would sell black market fuel. So these Sunni like teenagers trying to make some money for their like poor family were selling black market fuel, but they happen to be Sunni. And this was a contested area. Civil War was really, really hot down in Samapak. And a bunch of Shia militiamen from what was called the Mahdi Army. This is the group that at the time was getting some support from Iran, although they later distanced themselves. They were led by this like iconoclastic guy from a very famous Shia uh, religious family named Muqtad al-Sadr. We called him Muki. And uh, so these Mahdi militia army guys, paramilitaries from the Shia sect, drove up in their black leather jackets. I mean, they thought they were like in the jets from West Side Story. I mean, they were like greasers. That's how they used to dress. You could always tell who was in the Mahdi army. I swear to God, it was like like out of a goddamn movie. Like, And uh, they they pulled their pistols out and they popped these two Sunnis. Uh, One guy got shot a few times in the chest and one guy took one right in the dome. We got there really maybe a minute after it happened. I mean, it was pretty quick. We just happened to be in the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time. We, We pull up and it's chaos, man. It's utter chaos. And I have no idea what I'm doing, right? I'm the first one out of the vehicle. I'm running to like right into the crowd like an idiot. People are screaming. I don't understand the language. My interpreter can't keep up with everyone who's yelling at him. And I'm looking at my first dead bodies that I had seen almost dead in one case. And this one dude's brains are on the floor. The older brother and um, the younger brother, I still don't know exactly how old they were, maybe 14 and 16 or 16 and 18. Uh, this guy's been popped in the chest and he's in bad shape. Yeah. So uh, I scream for my medic. Doc Schrader gets out. He runs over to the to the one that's still breathing. He vomits immediately. He had never been deployed. He was a PFC. Turned out to be a great medic. So nothing against Doc. Love you, bud. This kid, Edsel Ford, PFC Ford, who was the biggest shitbag ever in garrison before we deployed. Always late, always in trouble, got demoted. Everyone thought he was going to be like the, the – he was like five foot three and 120 pounds soaking wet. But it turns out that he had been like an EMT. He joined the Army in his early 20s, so a little older than most guys. But he had been like an EMT. And it turns out not only was he really, really good medically, and we didn't even know. He never told us because he was too busy like being late and drunk at formation. He jumped in and like tries to stabilize this guy. He just took over, man. It was like incredible. And turns out he would become like the hero of our platoon and win a number of medals for valor over the course of the deployment. But this is what's happening. I'm right there. I'm kneeling over this like gasping for life, dude. And everyone's yelling. I, I don't know what's going on. The crowd is forming. Women are shrieking, as you know. After, you know, I saw that many, many more times. Yeah. And now the question is. What do we do, right? Because an Iraqi like ambulance that looked a whole lot like a hippie truck from Woodstock, like I don't even know if it was a real ambulance, took the guy whose brains were on the floor. I don't know why they took him, threw him in the ambulance, but they didn't take the guy who was still breathing and they just drove off. So wow. like now I'm left with – I don't know what happened. I mean everyone was – it was so confusing, man. Like I, I don't even – like I sometimes I wonder if my memories are even accurate, you know, because like you know how this shit is in like early combat, especially like there's a lot of blur to your memory of it. But like – there's some stranger than fiction stuff that happens too. I mean, you kind of reflect back and back on it and you're like, wait, what? I mean, did that really, really yeah. happen? 
totally. I, and sometimes I wonder, and sometimes I don't even trust my memory. And I actually ask my guys, like, hey, I, and when I was writing the book, I was like, I would tell them, I'd be like, hey, I'm going to write this vignette. I need your take on it. First, just don't talk. Listen, let me tell you what I think happened, and then you tell me what you remember. And it was really a remarkable experience. But anyway, Ford is working on this guy, and the human being in me kind of just takes over, and I'm like, all right, throw him in my truck. Now, we, I don't know what your policy in your division or sector was, or if it was Baghdad wide, but we weren't supposed to take local national casualties to our aid station. There was like a couple of exceptions, but we weren't supposed to do that. But there was no hospital of any note except in Baghdad. Like yeah. in my in the entire province or district that I was in, there was nothing. There was like this tiny little aid station with one doctor and he had nothing. Like he didn't even have a nurse. So this dude's going to expire and, and Ford is like yelling at me. Like he's a PFC, but he's like yelling at me. He's like giving me orders about how bad this guy is. And we've got to like do something like, sir, have a heart. Basically, let's do something because he's working on this guy. He's developed like a kinship that happens. and so. I'm like, fuck it, throw him in the truck, and we start driving north. Maybe eight miles we had to cover to get back to our fob. Now, which is a long way. It is. Yeah, it, it is a long way. In, in, in a rocky distance, it's a long way. Yeah, because of the potholes and the ID holes, and just there's a lot of reasons. And also having to be cautious and like make sure you don't like roll over an ID because you're going too fast. Yeah. So I could have taken him to a hospital in Baghdad, especially on the Karada Peninsula. There was a good hospital, but that would have been a really long drive. We would have had to pass my fob and then fight through Baghdad traffic, which is like way worse than even LA traffic where I am right now recording. Because there was like no traffic lights and stuff back. There was no rules. It was crazy. So I mean, it would, this guy wasn't going to die. So I'm calling on the radio the whole way up. I'm like, I, I sounded like an idiot. I know I did. I know I sounded like a panicked lieutenant who didn't know what the hell he was doing, who just saw his first dead guy. And I'm like begging my captain. Uh, and then he is asking the colonel and then getting back to me. And like they keep telling me, no, no, don't bring him. F- take him to the Iraqis. Turn him over to the Iraqi police. I'm like, well, there's no Iraqi police around. So I just keep going north, figuring, hey, at least I'll be going in the right direction. And I keep pleading with them. And I really, I'm really just like a, uh, just being a, a pain in the ass, you know. And eventually, they never say yes, but I'm like a mile from the gate. And they basically eventually don't say no, which I just take as like, okay, I'm coming on in. I'm coming in hot, you know. So I tell my like sergeant who's on the radio in the talk of our company CP command post. I'm like, yo, tell the gate guards like we're coming in hot so that they can like let us in kind of fast. And uh, we did. We drove into the A station. We had like a, maybe a level two or something. I don't know. It was like not the highest level, but it was a decent aid station. Yeah. I helped carry him in. We didn't have him on a litter. We didn't have him on a stretcher. We, he was laying across my artillery specialist's lap and Ford's lap in the back seat. And Ford was like continuing to do uh, work on him. I carried his legs and Ford carried his arms and, and we carried him in and he was dead. He was dead. Uh, he was declared dead when we put him on the table, uh, like immediately. Man, it's awful. It's not even a great war story. I mean, there were so many that came later, but I'm telling this story because it really affected me intellectually and ethically and emotionally because two things happened when it was all over. I did my debrief, which was nonsensical because I didn't understand what had just happened. So I didn't even know what to tell them. I I mean, I knew the basic contours, right? Sectarian killing, again, these were happening dozens and dozens a day, sometimes hundreds a day at that point in Baghdad alone, depending on the day because I've read the WikiLeaks logs. But I had two things to do. Uh, the first thing is I, I cleaned the blood out of my backseat by myself, not because I'm some hero, like down to earth soldiers officer, but just because 
I don't know. I, I guess I, I just didn't want someone else to do it. So, so I did that, even though the soldiers were like, we'll do it, we'll do it. I was like, no, nah, I'll do it. So like I scrubbed the blood out and I have a lot of time to think because it was a daytime mission. Now the mission got cut short and we didn't have to go back out. They didn't make us go back out right away. We eventually did go back out and talk to the father. We found the father. That's a whole other thing. I mean, this dude, it was like the worst thing I've ever been a part of was telling this guy, like he knew or whatever. He knew his one son was dead. I think he had already got word the one that went in the ambulance, the, the hippie truck. Yeah. But I told him that his other son was, because he didn't know what happened to him. He just knew that the Americans took him away. So I look at this dude, this like old dude, and the dude th- was so polite to me. He thanked me. He thanked me. Like, he felt bad for me. I, I mean, he basically, he didn't exactly say this, but he basically asked me if I was okay. And he's like crying. It was just the worst. It was the fucking worst. But I had a lot of time to think that night and then the next couple of days, which were pretty quiet. We didn't have a lot of, we didn't have any fights or anything the next few days. So emotionally, it bothered me. It turned out that I don't like blood a whole lot. Probably wasn't a great fit. I mean, you wouldn't have known it because I played the role pretty well for many, many years, over a decade. But really, I, I probably wasn't particularly suited in some ways for this business. I was a very emotional kid my whole life. But really what got me was I've always been like a thinker, like an overthinker. And like I just couldn't stop running through in my head what had happened and what it portended, right? And I shouldn't have thought this. Like, I mean, if I was smart, I would have stuck to blissful ignorance and not questioned it and not thought too much about it because that turned out to be the least of it. I mean, I, I, I walked up on car bombings in markets once I moved into Baghdad where there were dozens of people dead. I mean, I mean, I, yeah. I, so this was nothing, right? But, but I tell this story and not those other more macabre, more great war stories because this was the first. And, and my favorite poet, Dylan Thomas, who's a Welsh poet from the World War II era and just after, who actually ended up drinking himself to death in a bar called the White Horse Tavern in Greenwich Village. He was a super alcoholic, and it's a bar that I still go to and a lot of tourists go to uh, in a weird, like, <laughs> the, the alcoholic poet circle. Yeah. But he, he wrote a poem during the Blitz when the Nazis were bombing London. I forget the title of it, but it's all about the first time he saw a dead little girl who was killed in the bombing. And uh, he writes this whole poem about it, and he, he ends it with the line, and, and I learned like the profound truth that after the first death, there is no other. And, and what I mean by that, and that's, that's on the bracelet that I'm wearing right now for the first three guys of mine that died under my command. Uh, that's the line that's on there. But I guess what he meant and what I think I felt was that, you know, after that, the, the first one, I don't know, it, it was the most profound, even if it wasn't the most interesting or exciting. And I kept running through in my head, what did this mean? Like, what did it mean that I'm in this situation, this mission? I know what the MNDB, which is Multinational Division Baghdad, right? The headquarters, two-star or three-star general headquarters in charge of Baghdad, the biggest command, the most populous command for U.S. soldiers at the time. I know what our mission statement said. It said something about providing security and stability to enable transition to the Iraqi people so that they can blah, 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 have a good economy and all this. It was a very flowery and, and bold mission. And then I knew how we we nested that mission all the way down to the company level, right? All the way down to like my level. But none of that jived with what I had actually just been a part of. And I started to be like, wait a second, how in the world are we going to win here? How in the world are we going to even define what victory is? Are we a force for good here? Because I knew from my studies at that point, because I did start reading obsessively before Iraq, like in the months leading up to Iraq, I read like every history book on Iraq. And then when I was there, I read like, I don't know, close to 100 books when I was in, in Baghdad. It was crazy. Um, it's all I did. Wow. It was insane, dude. Like it's all I did was read. It was bad for me. I wish I didn't. But um, I... Uh, <laughs> it may be one of the first times I've ever heard somebody say that reading is bad Right? For me, I'm telling yeah. you, man. Sometimes ignorance is 
motherfucking bliss. But I, uh, I started to think, and, and so that informed my view that maybe America had caused this because we did empirically at least unleash the forces uh, of civil war. And then, and then we were being attacked by both sides and it just seemed like, okay, who wants us here? A lot of people don't, they're killing each other. I'm picking up the bodies because literally that's what we started doing. And I'm sure you had that experience too in West Baghdad, just picking up, yeah. picking up the, the, in the morning, right. When they would leave the bodies bound and killed on the soccer fields for everyone to see like trophies, yeah. like big game. So this really affected my view of the war. I don't know. The idealism died and it was already dying. And, you know, I don't buy the whole like pivot points, like one thing happens and it changes everything. I don't want to give that impression. That's not what I'm saying, but what it did, yeah. well, this was a waypoint for me that started to inform it. So everything else I saw that was just like this, and then turns out to be way worse. I was informed by that question of what are we doing here? Are we doing any good? Can we succeed? What does victory even mean? Which has to be put in quotes. And of course, no one even talks about victory anymore 19 years later, right after Afghanistan started. But uh, that was that. And much of my tour, especially once we moved into Baghdad, became not so much policing the civil war, because we very rarely were able to stop it. But just picking up the residue in the form of like bodies and like mourning mothers. And it was really, really ugly. I'm not going to get deep into my next pivot point, except to say that after this, we had a month of like a lot of firefights, like the month of November, we were doing a lot of shooting, but we, none of us got hit. We did some killing. We got shot at, we had, you know, close calls and we all got our combat action badges. We got hit by a few IEDs, but none of them did any serious damage. We got, we got lucky a lot of times, right? War is luck. Yeah. War is boredom. War is luck. War is fear. It's all those things at once, but it's mostly boredom. And uh, yeah, it's like, it's like long stretches of boredom that are like occasionally informed with like moments of sheer terror. But in December, down in Salmon Park, people started getting hit. And um, Sergeant DeJane, one of my junior E5s, took a bullet through the spine. He's still in a wheelchair. Uh, I see him about once a year. Faulkner got shot in the, you know, in the in the uh, forearm by a sniper when he was taking a piss. Um, he eventually would get wounded in Afghanistan at Cop Keating, which was the base that got overrun famously in yeah. November or October of 2009. He was one of those rare guys. I think there's been about just under a hundred, at least at one point, who were wounded in both wars. And then he um, overdosed. We could debate whether it was a suicide or not, but officially he overdosed afterwards. So anyway, one of my, one of many of my soldiers, three of my soldiers either took their own lives or are suspected of having taken their own lives after the deployments, including my driver, yeah. including my driver, but um, which is a whole other issue for another episode about veteran suicides, but you know, it really is. 22 a day and all that. I mean, it, it, even if the stat is cooked a little, anything close to that is terrible. So, this started happening. We move up into Baghdad, and now we move up into like EFP territory. We're in the land of the Shia militia. They run the show. We're just visiting. They control the night, and they've got pretty sophisticated IEDs that are either supplied by Iran. There's a lot of debate about this, or at least they learned how to use them and learned how to homegrown make them from Iranian sources, including the Republican Guard, which was even then spearheaded and led by that Qasem Soleimani general who we recently executed very we're not going to debate whether that was right thing to do or not but very infamously Trump killed him uh and expeditiously right yeah really really wild I mean a wild thing to do right whether it was good or bad the execution of a sovereign states general officer who was probably the yeah. third most powerful guy in that government but anyway 
Uh, yeah, and that's not not necessarily a statement of support. It's just an observation. Yeah, it was, it was very very quick and very decisive. It really was. I mean, yeah, it was. It, I mean, it was. If nothing else, it was decisive. I mean, almost impressively so. And again, that's not a positive judgment. As I think you know where I stand on that. But these bombs were called explosively formed penetrators or something like that, and or projectiles. I don't remember what the acronym stands for, but they were really really incredible. Yeah. They, they would basically put them in a coffee can or a series of coffee cans. They were basically molten copper slugs that would form with an enormous amount of heat into like missiles that could pierce even tanks. I mean, guys were getting, guys were getting wounded in tanks in the first cavalry division. Um, uh, It's like a molten metal slug that would just punch through just about anything. Right. And I think the numbers that are thrown around are that like maybe six or 700 Americans at least were killed by those bombs. And so those, those deaths are often laid at the feet of Iran, which was part of the justification for killing Soleimani. But what all we knew is that we didn't have, anything in our arsenal that could stop it. Um, yeah. And that's what, that's what hit Ryan too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember I was, I was not there at the site, but uh, I, you know, I was uh, in sector when he got hit and wounded and I didn't know it was him, but you know how you'd like, you would follow like the SIG acts, which is basically the significant activities of uh, the, the, yeah. the, the casualty producing events. Like you would follow them in your area, like even on your whole side of the city, I'm sure you did this too, even if they weren't your unit. Cause you just kind of got a sense for like, okay, what's going on? What's the enemy doing? And maybe you're just interested in how bad the casualties were. So I, I, I remember the attack. I had actually heard it on the radio because we were adjacent to their sector at that time. I didn't know it was Ryan. I didn't even know he was, I knew he was in that unit, but I, I didn't even know it was his company. But, um, yeah, you know, EFPs were fucking us up, man. And, and we had nothing in our arsenal. And I rolled in Humvees and they made our Humvees into Swiss cheese when they hit us. They literally did. And then the other thing that was really bad about the EFPs was that the trigger device was really sophisticated. So they had a couple of ways of doing it, but the main one, the most sophisticated was the passive infrared laser. So we couldn't really see those even through our night vision goggles. And uh, yeah. and what would happen is once you broke the laser, like once you broke the, the plane or the circuit, the bomb would go off. And so the enemy didn't even have to be there, right? They didn't have to detonate it. They could be, they could like set it, especially at night when there was no civilian vehicles around because there was a curfew that was in place martial mm-hmm. law yeah. martial law was in place i think until 2011 definitely the whole time we were there so the, at night they would set these things up all over the city i mean they littered the city with them and then they would shut them off in the morning so that the rush hour traffic wouldn't get killed yeah and except for when they forgot and killed themselves but it was a hopeless and a helpless feeling and i'm not gonna go to the whole story except to say that that it was hopeless and it was helpless and, I, and, I, and you probably felt the same way about some of those deep buried sunni ids that were blowing bradley's upside down it, yeah. it was a feeling that we didn't, you know, we had a lot of devices, all of which were mostly classified. We won't get into, we did have dev- counter ID devices, but in this particular type of case, nothing in our arsenal was, was at the time at least capable of stopping either the trigger of the bomb or the effectiveness of the bomb against our armor. So in other words, our armor, our, our preventative armor wasn't strong enough and our predictive tactics to like find them ahead of time or neutralize them ahead of time couldn't keep up. So we were helpless. In fact, it got so crazy that people started getting irrational in East Baghdad. There was a theory that glass, bulletproof glass, was more effective at stopping the copper slugs than the, than the metal armor. And so people were going to their mechanics and like there was a fob wide shortage of glass windows because everyone was stealing them and like bolting them onto the uh, illegally. You weren't supposed to do it, bolting them onto the side of our Humvees. I, I came to find out later that, that that was largely a myth, but we, we were so desperate people were doing it. And then another thing, some people would like joke that they would like spread their arms and legs apart 
like while they were driving so that like they would at least keep one leg, you know, when the slugs came through. I mean, it's just dark humor, you know? Yeah. 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 We weren't supposed to smoke cigarettes in our Humvee. I was so sure that I was probably going to take an EFP at some point that I was chain smoking very severely throughout the deployment that I, I actually made like a little holder out of uh, electrical tape on the, in front of me on the Humvee and like taped it. And I made, I made it the perfect size to slip a pack of cigarettes and I would, I would rip the top of the cigarette pack off and I would just light them off each other as we drove, even though I was setting a bad example because we weren't supposed to smoke in our vehicles, but fuck it. And my theory was like, I used to joke with everyone like, Oh, when I die, I'm going to die with a cigarette in my mouth. That's the one thing I can control. And so eventually, yeah, you know, we got hit with a few, uh, one of them was fatal, January 25th, 2007, the first a bunch of my guys have been wounded by that point, a lot actually. And then uh, two of my guys were killed and two more wounded, one very severely who pretty much lost an arm. My favorite soldier, Alex Fuller, was in the backseat. He had been my gunner uh, all through training for like a year and he had just gotten promoted to sergeant very, very young. I adored him. I was too close to him. I was too close to all my soldiers. I made that fatal error. I used to call my young enlisted soldiers by their first name. I mean, they didn't call me that. It was weird because no one does that in the army, but it was like my term of endearment for them. And everyone thought it was weird. My sergeants yeah. would make fun of me. Like, sir, you're like not even a real officer. <laughs> and uh, I loved him. He was from a very, very, very bad family, like some soldiers. Like, uh, I would say a disproportionate number of soldiers are. His, uh, his mom, yeah. mom was an alcoholic. She's dead now. Um, he had two brothers and a sister. His brothers were in out of jail for drugs. His sister was doing a long clip in a Florida pen. And he uh, ran away from home to another state. He was born in Massachusetts in New Bedford, a really poor town down by the water in southern Massachusetts, closer to Rhode Island. But he, uh, his family moved to Florida, and, and like he was just like deep in the drug game as a teenager, and like his brothers were a terrible influence. He actually runs away from home back to Massachusetts when he's like 16, drops out of school, and eventually gets a GED, and then like meets a girl. He meets a girl, Anastasia, Stacy, Russian immigrant, Ukrainian immigrant, who's 13, and they fall in love at like a goddamn dance that he crashed on Cape Cod. And they're, they're inseparable and they end up getting married when he's like 18 and she's like 16. He moves in with her family and makes the decision that he's going to join the army. And so he goes back and gets his GED, which was a requisite at the time. And at this time, the recruiting was a problem. So they were taking GEDs very often. And, uh, yeah, and double, triple waivers. Right, exactly. Yeah. So he, it was interesting because he got like double and triple waivers in order to get in the army because he was a high risk soldier, right? He was like low, low quality as far as the recruiters were concerned. But, and, but then, yeah. then he got promoted to E5 in 38 months, which was basically as fast as you could do it. And he got double and triple waivers again, except this time in a positive way. It was a model. Yeah. The kid was a fucking model soldier. He was everything you read about in the, or you watch in the movies. The guy who's like the thug who makes a new – F. Scott Fitzgerald, the great Gatsby author, said that there are no second acts in American lives. I disagree. I love Fitzgerald, but Alex Fuller proved that there are second acts, and, and he was the greatest. Uh, he was a mess in a lot of ways. His marriage was always on the rocks, although he adored Stacy, despite <laughs> dalliances that I would have to get caught in the middle of when she would call me in the middle of the night. Um I mean, he was like, the joys of being, yeah. the joys of being the officer. right. The joys of being the lieutenant, especially the lieutenant who like gets too close to his guys, which I think a lot, yeah. a lot of us do. He uh, would run out of money every month at the end of the month, and I would like literally like buy him Burger King every night, and he would sit in my car and he would perform his latest uh, rap songs that he would write on little pieces of paper because he was an aspiring rapper. Nice. It's actually pretty decent. Anyway, he yeah. was killed. Um, what sucked about it, beyond the fact that he was killed, was that he didn't want to be a gunner anymore. 
now that he made E5, he wanted to be a dismount team leader, meaning he wanted to be, we have small platoons in the scouts. We only have a few dismounted guys who are not either driving or, or manning the gun. And they're the ones that like kick the doors in and do the raids and jump out of the vehicle if there's a firefight. And he wanted to do that because yeah. he was like an ass kicker. He begged me for months. And I finally acquiesced about two or three weeks before he was killed. And of course, you know, everyone has these stories and I know it's trite, but I felt very much at the time as a 23-year-old kid officer that I killed him in some way. I don't really believe that anymore because if I would have just like gone with my instinct and kept him on my crew, he would have been in the second truck instead of the first truck. He wouldn't have died, blah, 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 blah. You know, all that contingency. But you know, he was gone. He was he was chopped meat. He died instantly. He was unrecognizable as a human being. My son, my 11-year-old, is named AJ, but his real name is Alexander James Michael. He is named after uh, Alex. And James was my driver. My crew used to be me, Alex, and James. Uh, James killed himself while he was on leave in Iraq. Uh, Alex was his best friend. A few months later, when James went home on leave, he hung himself in his closet. And then Michael was the driver of, of Alex's truck. So that, that's where my son's name comes from. I don't know. Maybe that's, maybe yeah. that's sappy, but I, I'm, I'm glad I did it. I'm glad I did the name. Well, hold up. First of all, it's not tribe. That's not like that at all. Uh, and then second of all, that's, yeah, that's, that's not sappy. That's that's honoring people that, that really deserve it. So uh, I think it's important to do that because I, I think that keeps real memories that matter alive. So, yeah, I'm, I mean, I appreciate you saying that at all. I appreciate you saying that, you know, cause I think we all have our doubts about whether we're doing things for the right reasons and stuff or, you know, I mean, it just, just comes, there's a lot of self doubt, but that's that, that all went down and um, more stuff. No one else died in the deployment. Um, it, I did have a pretty high, I think higher than average casualty rate in my platoon, bad luck, basically. It wasn't because we were badasses, and I, I don't think it was because I was a particularly bad officer. But we, uh, you know, I had started with nine, my, of my 19 original guys, um, 11 were killed and wounded. I, actually, after that, because we had a bunch of guys wounded and sent home already. So actually, something that happened that was interesting is that night, I lost four guys, three permanently, two dead, one sent home, ducks, lost uh, most of his arm. He has some of it left but no use. Uh, and then Sergeant Riddle ended up coming back, but for, you know, I lost four more and I already had like three guys sent home already. So actually I was yeah. like, my platoon was shattered emotionally, by the way, after that. And I was really worried that they were going to like basically mutiny and like refuse to go out. And I was really hoping that my boss would give me like a week off, like to like reconstitute my platoon. I got like less than 72 hours, but because I didn't have enough guys to man four trucks and, and our rule uh, in my squadron, I think the Baghdad wide, it was three trucks. You had a, yeah, it was in the DB. Yeah. Have, uh, but, but, you know, yeah. subordinate units can, can always up the number, right? You can't downgrade, but you can up it. So in my squadron, right. actually my whole brigade, you got to have four trucks. Well. I didn't have enough guys to man four trucks, just gunner, driver, TC or, 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 or commander of the truck. Cause I didn't have 12 guys. So they actually gave me uh, a couple of clerks and a couple of cooks. And, uh, the Colonel spoke to me personally, Jimmy, and I give him credit for that. He came down, he basically undercut my captain, who was a shitbag, and, and he was like, hey, Dano, like, I'm giving you these dudes, like, you have, like, basically 72 hours to make them scouts, and I was like, oh, sweet. But, uh, so that was the deployment, you know, it was 15 months, uh, things did quiet down a little, violence did start dropping after July, after August, actually, once we, um, we developed, not really a truce, but the Sodders army kind of, like, did a ceasefire for a while, but, uh, went home, yeah. I didn't believe in the war at all. When I got home, I was really, really angry. I was in a really bad place. I was drinking a lot with my sergeants when we got back. Because, you know, you don't work very hard. Uh, work like a lot of half days for a few months after you get back. Um, get a lot of time yeah. off, which, which is good and it's also bad. And, 
I was definitely not someone who was like going to go be an anti-war activist, but I was, I was more of like nihilistic, really dark, tragic comedy was like the name of my game. And, uh, I stayed in a couple more times. I ended up, if you include the West Point years, I was in for just under 18, if the active officer years, uh, I guess it was like, uh, just under 14 years. I wanted to get out. I always said I was getting out especially after Iraq, because I was like, this is bullshit. This is unwinnable, like not worth one more life. That's how I felt. But I kept staying, you know, uh, for a lot of reasons. At first, it was, I really like liked my ego being stroked. I, I don't want to give the wrong impression. I work for some good people. I work for some awful people. Yeah. And I work for some fucking good people that I love to this day. And the people that I did work for that I did respect, like the company commander who took over at the end of my deployment, who I love, Melvin Porter who was uh, in command of the troop that got overrun at Cop Keating because he stayed in the unit. Um, although he switched out right around the time of that battle. But he was like, I remember we were flying out. It was like maybe December like 24th. It was like Christmas Eve maybe. And we were flying to Kuwait on our way home. We eventually got home on the New Year's Eve. And we're sitting on the flight line with like all our shit, you know, like all our bags, like the middle of the night. I remember it was cold. And, and he like gives me this like speech, like this like pep talk out of the movies about why he knows that I talk a lot of shit, but I can't get out because if all the good people get out, if the guys with empathy who care about their soldiers, who are smart, if they all get out, who's going to be left? The shit bags and the sociopaths and good people have to stay in and, and, and fix the system from within. Right. And I bought it. Partly I bought it. I still had enough belief that I thought you could change the system from within. But I think mainly, as I look back at it with a little bit of a more clear-eyed view, I think I really just like gold stars ever since kindergarten, you know? Um, I think I really like yeah. being told that I was one of the good ones. So that was how uh, originally I stayed in a few times for that. Then I got accepted to go back and teach at West Point, which was like my dream job because I'm a history dork. I went back and taught in the history department. This was after Afghanistan, which was an even worse war for me in a lot of ways. Lost a, whole, a bunch more guys, uh, three killed, uh, over 30 wounded in my troop. I was a troop banner at that point. A lot of legs blown off. I stayed because I got to go to West Point. I had made a little deal with myself, an internal monologue. After Afghanistan, I applied for the West Point job, which is pretty selective, actually. So I didn't know if I'd get in. I applied while I was in Afghanistan, which was a pain in the ass because I had to like find a fax machine. It was a whole fucking pain in the ass. But I said, okay, well, Danny, if you if you get accepted to West Point, you'll stay in. And if you don't get accepted to go back and teach West Point, you get out, right? Because that's a smart time to get out before you hit 10 years, right? And uh, I got accepted to West Point. At that point, I think I pretty much accepted that I was going to do a career because once you leave West Point, after you do grad school and teach there for two or three years, now you're at like 11 or 12 years, right? So it kind of like yeah. you're halfway over. But, you know, you get promoted to major. I got promoted to major while I was in, in the history department. And like, dude, the military is straight socialism. I mean, and I don't even say that as a political statement. I say it as an empirical fact. I mean, you're 100% right. So there's no, I mean, it, yeah. it is, uh, it's, it's built as that as that construct. Yeah, it's the most socialist institution in, in American life. The pay starts to get pretty good at that mm -hmm. point yep. uh, as a senior captain, and then especially the major is a really big pay jump. And uh, I really like my health care. I had a, I had a, uh, I had an ex-wife at this point and, and child support, and I had a new wife and, and, and stepkids and soon to have a new kid. And then, of course, I'm divorced again. Turns out that uh, I don't think I'm not really built for that. But, um, yeah, the money and the stability started to be a good reason to stay and just all like the sunken costs, right? The sunken costs of time you'd put in and uh, kept staying. Yeah. It doesn't really matter why I got out, I, you know, a lot of reasons. Basically, what I will say is that I left Iraq angry. I entered Afghanistan totally against the war. Even though I, under, yeah. even though I understand why we went to Afghanistan, I, I went to Afghanistan full well believing that we couldn't win and that the mission statement was was ludicrous, like the idea of making democracy. So I went to Afghanistan as a mercenary, 
in a lot of ways. And I know that's like a really provocative statement, but like for me, I'm not saying that every soldier is that, but I started to feel like a mercenary because I was doing the job, not because I believed in the cause, not because I believe we were doing any good in the world, but because it was my job. And I felt like that, that made me sort of almost like mercenary. And I also was doing it largely for the stability. And my only mission in Afghanistan personally was to get as many guys home alive as I could. I failed at that grossly, grotesquely, but that was what I cared about. I didn't give two shits about anything else. I wanted to avoid danger whenever possible. But of course, I was there for the second surge in Afghanistan. And just like my first deployment, I have a bad habit of being in the wrong place at the wrong time through no choices of my own. I'm not a badass. I just happen to have been two very bad places at very bad times. So I couldn't take all the guys home. Maybe a better officer could. I couldn't. I doubt someone could. But I left Afghanistan not so much angry as like cerebral and convinced that something was wrong with the structure of America's wars. I left Afghanistan in January of 2012. I went to grad school almost immediately after that summer. I went to grad school like in July and I was in civilian world for two years. I mean, I didn't even wear a uniform. I mean, I took a PT test that my that my wife signed, okay, which I don't think is how you're supposed to do it, that I would fax in to Fort Jackson. I mean, I was not in the army. And I had right. a lot of time to think about what I'd just been through since 2001. At that point, we're talking 12 or 13 years of, of military service of some sort. I really, I started reading and writing a lot more. I was watching C-SPAN. I was the one person in America watching C-SPAN because no one watches that shit. But I was for my sins. And Lindsey Graham, doesn't matter. He happens to be a Republican from South Carolina, very, very involved in foreign policy, very famous senator. Right. He gave a speech about the Iraq surge. Basically what he was – and I don't even want to get into politics except to say this is how I felt. I'm not sure that I'm right. But Lindsey Graham was given this speech on the floor of the Senate. The topic of the day was something about the economy, but he chose to use his two minutes of the floor to bash Obama, who I bash all the time for other reasons. But he was saying Obama squandered our victory in Iraq. The surge, which you and I had been a part of, had worked completely, and Obama was messing it up. Just all this stuff. I didn't agree with it. So much did I not agree with that. I thought the surge had been, uh, even though it had some short-term effects, I always thought, even back then, that it wasn't going to like have any long-term benefits. And, of course, that turned out to be true. Maybe we can argue about why. But I was really angry with Lindsey Graham, and I was in a bad place, man. I was not healthy. I, yeah. I had collapsed emotionally and finally agreed to see a therapist in 2013. This was 2014, my second year of grad school. I'm literally screaming at the television. I'm turning red. I'm crying. I'm like tearing, like not like sad crying. And my wife at the time was like, yo, shut the TV, go upstairs and write about it. Cause she knows that like, I like, like to write and stuff. I never wrote professionally back then, but I just like to write like journal and stuff. So I went upstairs and I wrote an essay that was like kind of op-ed, kind of like crazy screed. And uh, she read it, thought it was good, said, why don't you go write some more? Suffice it to say, four months later, I had 90,000 words and, and I wrote a book, but I didn't write a book about Afghanistan where I just been. I, I, I went back to my first war to the, you know, after the first death, there is no other Dylan Thomas. And I, and I wrote about Iraq and I wrote it in the late 2014. It published while I was teaching at West Point in October of 2015. And from that moment, the army was over for me, even if I didn't know it yet. Yeah. At that point, my transition to being a public dissenter, really a dissident on active duty, had begun, and, and that characterized my career until I retired medically in uh, for PTSD uh, in February of 2019. So it's been a year now. I've been retired for just a little over a year. It's been a crazy fucking journey, man. And I guess yeah. what's interesting is you've you've interviewed what five of us now, four or five of us now on the pod. Let's see. I've just hit seven interviews. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so 
I guess listeners should definitely criticize my verbosity and my joy in hearing my own voice, but I really hope it doesn't come off as me thinking that I had some sort of special experience because I have enough friends like you. We know a lot of the same people. We're close to a lot of the same people, which is interesting. Yeah. Almost all of whom had either the identical experience or in some cases a worse experience. So I don't want to like make it sound like I'm special and I had some sort of like crazy deployments, but just this was my journey and uh, it led me here. It, it led me to LA, right? I'm sitting in downtown LA <laughs> looking out a glass window at the beautiful skyline of the land of fake boobs and fake people. And yeah. you know, I'm, here, I'm here to give anti-war speeches all week at USC and other places. This is where I'm at. Well, and I don't think I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for those stories I just told you. Absolutely. And I don't, yeah, nothing that you've said is you know, really terribly provocative in the way that, you know, your experience isn't particularly, you know, you've had some, some terrible things that you've had to, to go through, but you know, a lot of other people have had to go through those too. And, and you, you absolutely lay that out there. And I don't think any of your sentiment behind your motivation is inauthentic. You know, there's no leap in logic there that's like, well, you know, that seems irrational because it's, it's not, it's, there is absolutely an amount of criticism you know, critical thought that should be put behind evaluating really the way the last 19 years have turned out. Where are we now and what benefit have we had as a result of them is a completely valid, you know, and two, the prosecution thereof, does it fall in line with the expectations we have of our military, of our foreign policy, of our, really of our national stature? I, th I think it's not only okay, but it's a necessity that we look backward in that way and, and say, can we finally be okay with holding our folks that create national strategy accountable? And I hope we are. But. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, I think what you're doing, Joey, is, is pretty interesting because I, I think you're doing something that's a little bit unique because, I mean, I know you didn't just interview West Point grads and soldiers, but I think you do a lot of that and you plan to do a lot of that. Yeah. You're interviewing 13-ish 14-ish years after almost all of us first went to Iraq. And so, like, you've put enough space between our wars and the time that we've had to think about it and grow up and right. mature and experience other things. And I think that this is the right moment as hopefully these wars start to wind down, maybe, for our generation of soldiers and officers to sort of be like, okay, like, what was it all about? And, and that and that can be totally divorced from politics. Like, I've tried to mostly stay out of that tonight. Yeah. But like, I think what you're doing is important. And, and I don't think I can think of, I've, I've listened to a lot of podcasts. I, I don't think I can think of anybody who's doing quite exactly what you're doing. And it's really cool. And I'm excited that you invited me as one of your relatively early guests. And I'm, I'm going to be listening to everything you do. And it's, it's I appreciate awesome. it. I appreciate it, man. And that's, yeah, that, that's precisely what I'm trying to go for. I want to accomplish a few things. One, one really big one is to help connect people to veteran stories of not just the kind of the stuff that you like, you may never hear people talk about because their people are not going to open up to anybody. Um, and I, I do think there's a problem with the divide. I do think there's a problem with people understanding what the experience is. But the other part of that is, do you understand what it means when you hear on the news that we're sending 10,000 troops somewhere in the world? Are you holding your politician accountable and saying, is that necessary? Should we be doing that or not? And, and, and the answer might be yes, the answer might be no, and our opinions might be different on that. But the other part is also showing people that there is a way that you can actually have these conversations with people that you disagree with. Yeah. And, and you can disagree with people and be civil about it and be fine with it at the end of the day. And you know, there's, yeah. there's more to it than that, but those are some things that I do want to do.
well, there's not enough civil discourse anymore. And that's as true on, on the left where I live as it is on the right. Absolutely. Yeah. Nobody talks. And, and I do think, and, and I don't want to be self-righteous because I do think that's the original sin of the soldier is self-righteousness. I think we're all guilty of it. The and veterans are very bad, very bad about it. Yeah, we all are. I mean, like there is this sense though among some veterans and I think it's dangerous and we should avoid it. We should eschew it. We should go against it when we start to feel it to be like only our opinions matter because we've been there and done that. And I think that's dangerous talk. You mentioned the civil military divide and I want to just read a very, very short thing. You said that there's, you think there's a dangerous divide that's sort of happening, right? Between like veterans and non-veterans, the military, the civil military gap, they call it, right? Yeah. And I'm reminded of Admiral Mullen, and, and again, I'm going to keep politics out of it. It doesn't particularly matter. Admiral Mullen was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs during the first half of the Obama administration. Yep. Um, very smart guy, right? Mike Mullen. Uh, yeah, undoubtedly a very smart guy. Uh, skeptical in some ways of the wars, I mean, within the system. But he gave a speech, uh, as a lot of listeners might know, at graduation day, the president rotates every year, which academy. So like it's Navy one year, then it's Air Force, then it's Army or whatever. If the president doesn't come, it's usually the vice president, the secretary of defense or the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, right? I think that's the circuit. Right. Who goes to their mm -hmm. polls. So this speech is actually, these speeches are kind of important. They're famous. Actually, sometimes they're used by the president as like policy speeches, like to lay out new policies. In fact- Yeah, didn't uh, George W. Bush do that in class 2002? Uh, yeah, the, the O2 class, the first class to graduate while we were there right after 9-11. I mean, he, he, he laid out his preventative war doctrine. Uh, but anyway, Mullen in 2011 did come to West Point when he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And he described the uh, civil military divide thus. He says, I fear that we don't know them and they don't know us. We generally don't speak their languages. We don't understand their histories. We don't know their families. We don't know how work is done. We don't know how money is made. We don't know all the nuances. We don't know the effects truly. And he's basically describing how like there has been this divergence and hopefully through your podcast and through these kind of conversations and, and listeners, hopefully who aren't military, I really hope that you're reaching. I know I always hope that I'm reaching a non-veteran community because I think, I mean, I want to reach veterans, but I want to reach broader. And I think that's true. I think that there is a divide growing. There isn't a draft anymore. Our soldiers, your soldiers and mine, right? I can, I know I can speak for you on this just empirically. Like they, they, they deployed again and again and again. Yeah. And they did that because there's no draft, because we do this with a relatively modest army, at least for the goals that we set. This is our society now, and this is the world we live in. And I think these conversations we have today are really important, man. Yeah. And you know, you said guys going again and again and again. I think part of that is also due to a tertiary effect of in the civil military divide and it's veterans not understanding the world that they could go into and being a little bit scared of it and thinking, well, I am in this life now and I know this life and it doesn't matter that it's going to send me to this place and it's going to have these impacts on me. I understand it and I know it and I'm going to, I'm going to go back again and again and again because it's what I know. Yeah. It is a state of isolation for those folks, and, and it's really hard for them to come back to society after after it's done. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of our veterans, who some of whom were your soldiers and mine and, and our peers, come home and they're kind of lost. Yeah. Like I was out the other night with one of my platoon sergeants from Afghanistan, great guy, wounded, and uh He's okay, you know? He's got his disability. He was medically retired. He's, he also got his federal just civilian disability. He's, he's making ends meet. We had a good time. We always do when we see each other like once a year. We, uh, we have a few too many drinks and a few too many cries. But 
he, like so many of my guys and your guys and fuck thousands that we never met, are just like caught in this netherworld where like I got the sense talking to him and he admits this rather forwardly, he's not military anymore, but he's not quite civilian either. It's like, who am I? I'm, I'm not a soldier anymore. I'm a veteran. I'm not really in the civilian workforce. I don't really connect with civilians, but I don't want to be in the army anymore or I can't be in the army anymore. And it's like, this is a really dangerous place emotionally for people to be. So yeah, I, I think that was a really important point that you made. And uh, yeah, with that, uh, Joe, I'm really glad to, to have done this, man. And uh, no, thank you. I, I'm looking forward to listening to more of your stuff. Yeah, man. Sounds good. All right, man. All right. Thanks, Danny. Talk soon. If you'd like to learn more about Danny's writing, whether that's books or his articles, or look into his podcast, you can check out the companion page to this episode. Oh, just one last thing. So in light of current events, I'm sure you found yourself digging through your closet for something you can use for a face mask. I know you looked long and hard at that old t-shirt. It's hard to forget all those sweaty days you spent in it. All the dead skin cells lingering in that fabric. You don't have to do this to yourself. Emblem Athletic just had a soft launch for a cloth face mask you can customize by color and with a logo of your choosing. Just head to emblemathletic.com to get started. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to the show. If you liked it, please share it with family and friends, and please consider leaving a rating or even better, a review. It really does help. And while you're at it, hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to connect with the show, you can visit the website at nstiwpodcast.com. Follow on Twitter at nstiwpodcast1 or on Instagram or Facebook at nstiwpodcast where you will receive additional notifications as well as additional content. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to see it continue to dive into bigger and better stories, consider donating. Navigate to the website where you can read how the donation will be used and you can easily donate over PayPal. On a final note, If you or someone you know has a story worth telling, please submit a summary via a contact form on the website for consideration. Thanks again and get out there and do something worth telling about.